starting with a poem by Mark Nepo. Last word of that before lecture chant words. We try to speak the Dharma. We do these impossible Dharma talks. And we do it because it's part of our affinity with the Buddha Dharma Sangha. We do our best. So this is a poem called On the Way to Windsor. By what road did you come? I can tell by your eyes you lost something along the way. Were you hurt or did you do the hurting? Me? Both. Did you drop anything willingly? I know. That's a hard one. I seem to have lost everything that identifies me. My heart's become a knapsack with torn little holes. I knew we'd meet like this. Oh, there are those who keep to themselves. And when the wind sounds like a loved one, they come out and squint. But tell me, what does it mean to dream on this side of suffering. That we can rest more, that we can hear small birds unlace the dawn. It seems very simple now. We can finally talk when there isn't much to say. It's quite beautiful, isn't it? It's quite beautiful, isn't it? the Dharma, and this from our great ancestor Bodhidharma. Self-nature is subtle and mysterious. In the realm of the inexplicable Dharma, not preaching a single word is called the precept of not lying. Not preaching a single word is called the precept of not lying. So the impossible task this morning for our precept student, Cynthia Doubleday, who began sitting with Meg Alexander, I believe, and has been a member of Everyday Zen for a few years now, and also Heart of Compassion Zen, her impossible task is to speak words about not lying. But thank you, Cynthia, for being here. Thank you for including all of us in your thoughts and heart as you begin. And I'm going to try and spotlight you. Can you? There you go. Good morning, everyone. I'm really, really happy to see all my Jukai sisters' faces. Um, I'm not usually part of this Friday morning, but I'd like to be more part of it. And to those of you whom I haven't met, thank you for letting me speak to you this morning. It's nice to see your faces as well. So precept number four. Jean, you actually just 
did a definition I haven't read. So could you please send it to me? I thought I had it from every angle, but not true. A follower of the way does not lie. That sounded pretty simple to me. I began this exploration into the fourth precept, thinking that I already knew pretty much what I thought about it and what I would say. I undertake to refrain from incorrect or false speech from the Pali canon. That too sounds pretty black and white. Precept four is the practice of scrupulous honesty from Upaya. Got that, I thought. Each of these definitions sounds pretty simple, pretty two-dimensional. Kind of like George Washington and the cherry tree. I thought, but wait, what do I really know about George Washington and the cherry tree? Wikipedia tells us that this story is a complete and utter fabrication. It was invented by one Mason Locke Weems, who published the first biography of George Washington the year after he died. He then published a new edition each year for at least seven years, because it's the seventh edition that has the story of George Washington. His motivation was profit by his own admission and also to glorify Washington's personal virtues in order to teach them to children. So if the most popular myth regarding honesty in our country is a lie, where are we to turn? I did some digging, but before I tell you what I found, please take a moment to either write down if you can, or just think to yourself what your own personal definition of a lie is, can be either in your own words or someone else's. And then let's take a more nuanced and thorough look at what has been written about this precept. Not only will we discover that precept number four jumps from two dimensions, which is what I thought, to three and maybe even into a fourth, no pun intended. What I discovered were threads of mycelia-like thought that led me through a tangled connection to all the precepts and then right back again to my cushion. Speaking falsely is also killing, says Robert Aitken, quote, specifically killing the Dharma. The lie is set up to promote the idea of a fixed identity, of a self-image, a concept or an institution. In making the end quote, sorry, in making a connection between lying and precept number one, killing, can further enlarges and, and complicates our understanding of this precept. I vow to cultivate loving speech. That's a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says and connects this to the second precept, practicing generosity. Further, he says, quote, aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and to relieve others of their suffering. Now suddenly the precept has come to include the way we listen in addition to the way we speak. 
Reb Anderson says, quote, all speech based on self-concern is false speech. He points to the fact that this is a violation of precept seven, elevating self above others, and precept eight, clinging to a sense of separate self. I read somewhere that even conveying a false impression through body language is a form of lying and deception. Again, an attempt to elevate self above above others and obscuring one's true self, one's Buddha nature. I felt the weight of the connection between I thought was the simplest of precepts and what I began to learn and see. And then what was I to do about planting my feet firmly in the vow not to lie? With all the ramifications and meanings of, of this goal, where was I to land? Clearly, I had failed to follow this precept in as many ways as there were to define it. As always, though, the cure is in the path that we are beginning to to know and understand and practice, putting the self on the self on the cushion to see compassionately our actions and the roots of them. Our Buddha natures know how to sit in in silence and watch whatever comes up honestly and without judgment. This This sitting clarifies who we know ourselves to be imperfect flex of universe-wide existence with repeated failings, but also with an immense capacity to change. It is this deep acknowledgement and then forgiveness of our own lies and misdeeds, which to me is at the heart of Buddhist practice. This is the experience of turning, as in Dogen's Hoke Ten Hoke, Dharma flowers turning Dharma Dharma flowers from the Shobogenzo. It is the moment when a realization strikes and turns you fully around, turns you away from anger, greed, delusion, and lying, and toward compassion and generosity. It turns you away from the notion of self and toward the interconnectedness of every single no thing in the universe. Thich Nhat Hanh writes, Avalokitesvara Bodhisattva is a person who has learned the art of listening and speaking deeply in order to help people let go of their fear and despair. Pardon me. He is also the person holding the willow branch. When he dips his branch into the water of compassion of his heart, wherever he sprinkles that water, everything is reborn. One drop can turn dry branches green. When we sprinkle that water of compassion on our own selves, we can turn toward compassion. What is more difficult to grasp and embody for me is the notion of what Thich Nhat Hanh calls, quote, cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others. While living in our whirling world of incessant news and fake news, as Putin pursues his absolute destruction of a neighboring democracy and its people, when we know that Moderna is filing for a patent on its vaccine, which was created by non-Moderna scientists and funded by the United States government, in, in order 
in the U.S. government in order to increase profits, the likely result that the vaccine will never reach impoverished nations or people. When in 2022, a qualified nominee to the Federal Reserve withdraws her name from consideration because she has supported action to reverse climate, climate change and cannot garner the votes. We are all feeling in this time of despair, living in the large mind or world of lying, as well as in the small world of mind and lying. We have heard about a Ukrainian woman whose family in Russia denied that her house and neighborhood had been destroyed by Russian missiles. What, if anything, can we do? My friends and I sort of ask each other this question every day. How are we to absorb or incorporate these horrors into our meager attempts at a bodhisattva life without becoming immobilized? The answer, of course, is what we learn from all of the precepts and all dharma, that all we can do for ourselves or for the world is to return to the cushion, sit long enough and regularly enough to turn from lies to compassionate listening. Probably the largest psychological connection to the fourth precept is anger. I found lots of it in my time on my pillow, exploring all the ways in which I caught myself lying to myself, to others, in blaming, in avoiding speaking the truth, in reacting hastily to what someone thinks when it's not what I think. I found two primary reasons, and both consistently arose from anger. The first one was to avoid feeling what I was feeling altogether, whatever it was. Often that was anger that was only peripherally or not at all related to the current event. And the second was to hide the expression of my anger, which, which was a response to the current event before me. Jeremy Yip is an assistant professor at Georgetown's business school. He specializes in research about the effects of anger on business. I found this fascinating. In particular, the connection between anger and lying. He writes, quote, our work establishes the link between feeling angry and deceiving others. Deception is a common behavior that occurs in organizations and poses a significant challenge in a variety of internal actions. For example, in job interviews, candidates may provide misleading statements in order to create a creative, a, a positive impression. Um, in negotiations, negotiations, negotiators will lie about their bottom line in order to claim more value. He continues, what we have investigated here was whether incidental anger, anger that's triggered by an unrelated situation, can promote the use of deception. What we found was that people who feel angry are more likely to lie to others. We also find that when people are angry, they become less concerned about how their actions impact others. This disinhibits them to engage in self-serving deception. This is particularly interesting to me in our time of cancel culture and extreme self-righteousness in all political spectra. 
Both are examples of elevating self over others and clinging to self-righteous views of the self. I think that the, Zen, that the practice of Zen meditation is the only answer to clearing ourselves of all the lies in our small mind world and a clear way to possibly speaking and listening with compassion. Still, this explains but does not answer the question of how to stay grounded in our Buddha nature when the world around us seems engulfed in lies and worse. Nor does it answer the question of what we contribute, what we can contribute to our world to help alleviate the despair that arises from lying and deception, especially when we're in a world of sort of helplessness over the anger and lying that we see. For me, there is only one thing that works other than turning off news sources, which also helps. And it works in the small small and the big mind level. Climbing aboard the one true vehicle, practicing the way we are learning is all we can do. This means spending enough time to take one or 10 or 20 slow breaths, to sit in silence, to place ourselves on the cushion, to come to know our lives intimately enough, to forgive them, and to recognize that there is no selfless, separate self. When we do this, Dharma flower can turn Dharma flower. We turn toward compassion for all others who, after all, are ourselves. It also opens the space behind our hearts to concentrate on the small acts of kindness which we can offer to the world. And there are ripple effects from these small acts. This is Dharma flower turning Dharma flower, learning from sitting how to stand with everything in the world calmly and truthfully. This is not easy work. For me, it requires reversing decades of trigger-happy speech and defensiveness. It will require a complete physical change in the way I often speak and think. Moreover, it requires cultivation in my body of the ability to listen without judgment. Thich Nhat Hanh says of his reconciliation work, first, there is the wondrous voice, first of the voices of Avalokiteshvara. This voice is pleasant to hear. It is refreshing and brings calm, comfort, and healing to our soul. Its essence is compassion. And later, Quote, second, there is the voice of the world regarded. The meaning of the word Avalokiteshvara is the one who looks deeply into the world and hears the cries of the world. This voice relieves our suffering and suppressed feelings because it is the voice of someone who understands us deeply, our anguish, despair, and fear. When we feel understood, we suffer much less. Maybe the compassionate listening is even more important than speaking the truth and not lying. I want to end with a poem that Thich Nhat Hanh says he learned at age 16 when he was studying the Lotus Sutra. The universal door manifests itself in the voice of the rolling tide. Hearing it and practicing it, we become a child. Born from the heart of a lotus, fresh, pure, and happy. 
capable of speaking and listening in accordance with the universal door. With only one drop of the water of compassion from the branch of the willow, spring returns to the great earth. And my question to you is, what, if anything, has changed about your definition of lying before we began? Thank you, Cynthia. Let's, let's just be silent for a moment and, and let that sink into all of us. That is a voice that is lovely to listen to, the voice of not lying, the voice of essence. Thank you.